Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For uh, our time in God's Word, I would just invite you to turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, to John chapter 1 for just a few minutes. John chapter 1, and uh, I just want us to consider the reality of the Word made flesh uh, in the few minutes that we have together. Um, tomorrow, many of us will have an opportunity with family, friends, and so forth to, uh, to open up gifts and uh, share some time together, uh, eating a little bit too much food and, and kind of soaking up uh, and enjoying the last of the Christmas spirit, if you will, before the, the holidays in the rearview mirror. Um, and as you look around at all the decorations, whether that's in people's homes, or maybe some of your homes, or maybe that's in the stores as you're out shopping or whatever, you, you come across... Um, the, these certain words that always seem to pop up at, during Christmas season. And um, one of those words that I see all the time, whether it's Christmas ornaments or signs or whatnot, is the word joy. Um, when we uh, spend time with loved ones, uh, when we are able to kind of shop without any guardrails, if you will, uh, good food, enjoy good food, to, we get time off from school and work, uh, we think joy. That's, that's a, it's a joyful time. It's a joyful occasion. Um, and so we, we associate Christmas with the, the word joy. And another word that seems to pop up all the time is the word peace. We hear that word kind of spread about, whether that's um, uh, conflict. And, and history is full of examples of conflicts that came to a screeching halt on Christmas, uh, and rightfully so for both sides to, to lay down arms and to celebrate in quietness and decency. So peace is, a, is an important term that we think about when it comes to Christmas. Another word that comes to mind at Christmas time is the word Noel. And um, we see that sprinkled on signs and ornaments and whatnot. And no one, no one really knows what that word means, um, but we, we hold on to it dear and we love it and we use it every Christmas. Uh, another word that comes to mind is hope. Um, we associate hope with Christmas, whether that's hope for better days, whether that's hope for um, prosperity and health in the new year, hope for a brighter future. These are the terms that we love to throw around at Christmas time: hope and Noel and joy and peace and all these interesting kind of terms. Uh, and they make us feel good. They're, they're things that embody the spirit of the season. Uh, when I was growing up, we had little ornaments with each of those words on it. Maybe that's why I thought to jot them down here in my notes. But as we come to the opening words of John's gospel, we see the apostle John has several words that embody Christmas, but they're different words than we're used to seeing and reading. And um, he uses words like life and light and, um, and witness and true they're words that the Holy Spirit, uh, who carried John along to write this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, uh, they're words that the Holy Spirit, um, they don't just describe a season, they, they describe a divine person. Um, a person that's kind of cryptically uh, addressed and spoken of here in John 1 as simply the Word, this individual called the Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, in these just few opening verses, 
John tells us about this divine person, and he is called the Word. But he's no ordinary person. He's no ordinary individual. Um, he is someone who, the Scripture says, existed eternally. He was in the beginning, before creation, before the heavens and the earth were formed. The Word, it says, was. He has no starting point. Um, he simply was at the dawn of time. In fact, verse 3 says that uh, he was present and is the one who uh, brought creation into existence. So he existed forever, eternally, outside of time. It says here he is, um, we learn that he is a unique and distinct person from God the Father. It says the word was with God, implying that he's someone distinct from God the Father, having communion, having fellowship with God, um, having individual personhood of some kind, whatever that might mean. And it also says that while he is distinct from God, the Father, yet he is God. He is truly God. He was God. In fact, he says that at the end of verse 1. The Word was God. Um, in his essential nature, the Word, this whoever this person is, is is God of very God. All that God is, the Word is, is what we learn in these just few verses. So John introduces us to this divine person whom he calls the Word. He existed eternally. He is distinct from God the Father, and yet he is God in, in every way. And, you know, we think about Christmas, we think about joy, we think about peace, we think about hope and, and so forth. But when John thinks about Christmas, he thinks about the Word, that, that's who he, his mind goes back to. Um, and in a different set of words flood his mind. And we see a few of them here in the text. And I just want to highlight them ever so briefly. He, uh, he introduces the divine word in verses 1 to 3. And then he tells us in verse 4, he uses a word to describe him and describe Christmas. And that is the word life. Verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so John begins this, this um, eyewitness account, and he ends it as well in chapter 20. Uh, and we read that the divine word was life, and, and that those who believe on him uh, may have life in his name, John 20, verse 31 says. So, so there's, uh, he, he, when he thinks about Christmas, he thinks about the word life. Uh, another key word that floods his mind is the word light. We see that. He says, he is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Verse 5, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So the world, of course, um, the word, excuse me, is the light of all people. The world gropes in chaos and darkness of sin and confusion, but this one who is called the Word, he brings illumination. He brings understanding. He actually brings guidance in a dark world. A third key word also jumps out in these opening verses, and that is the word true. In verse 9, he says, There was the true light, which, coming into the world, he says, enlightens every man. And so John says the divine word was the real light. That's what he means by the word true there. He is the genuine light. There are partial lights in the world. There are false lights in the world. And many people follow them. But the divine word, this person that he speaks of here, is the only genuine light. 
and he says he is the true light that guides us on our path. So John says he is the real, genuine light. So this divine figure is the source of life. He is the source of light, the scripture says, and he is the source of that which is true. But when John says something uh, in verse 14 that is truly earth-moving, and I mean it's earth-moving on a nine, as a, almost like 9.0 on the Richter scale, because after describing this divine person in, as one of light and life and truth, and, and all these kind of superlative terms, and then in verse 14 he says this, and this is really earth-shattering, he says that the word, this person, this divine person, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that, that is what is absolutely staggering. This word who exists eternally, this word who created the world and all that is in it, this world, this word who was with God and is God, that word has become a man. And John says that we and others saw him with our own eyes in time and space. I mean, the, the reality of this is, is earth-moving, that God could, could and would become a human being, that God could enter into this life that we live, that eternity could appear in time, and somehow that the Creator could appear in creation and be seen. It's just staggering. And who is this word become flesh? This, what, what's the identity of this God, man, who breaks into human history? Well, we learn that he is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. If you look at verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or made him known. And so um, what we see here is John telling us, testifying to the fact that the Word became flesh. You say, well, how does that work? How does the Word, how does God become a human being? And how does his godness and his humanity, how does it all fit together? And how does an infinite God inhabit, inhabit finite time and space? Um, those are all interesting questions, important questions that uh, we can answer to some degree from other portions of Scripture. Um, but it's beyond the scope of what we need to worry about this evening because it's beyond the scope of what John's worried about in this text. He's not concerned about the how. How did the Word become flesh? He is concerned with the consequences that flow out of that reality. In other words, what does that mean for you, for me, and for all of us? And he's going to show us here in these verses that there are two glorious, glorious aftershocks that reverberate out from this earthquake in verse 14, where he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, I want you to notice the first of these two aftershocks. And that is this, and it comes to us in the second part of verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, and we saw his glory, glory as of the one and only or only begotten from the Father. And so the first glorious aftershock is this, in the face of Jesus Christ, 
you see the glory of God the Father. You see the glory of God the Father. He said, I, we saw God's glory. The invisible God in all of his manifest perfections, in all of his glory, we saw that. We saw it. John and the other disciples said they saw God's glory, and that glory that they beheld was nothing less than the wonder and the glory of God, God himself. And, and we encounter that same glory, not with our physical eyes, but in the Word of God, where the eyewitness testimony is recorded for us. The Scriptures also show us the glory. We see God the Father's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, just as they did. When the world looks at Jesus, they see a good teacher. When the world looks at Jesus, they see a wise man, perhaps, or a moral example, some kind of leader of a religious movement. But John says, no, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the glory of God in the flesh. He is, Colossians 1 says, the image of the invisible God, which seems like a contradiction. He's the what you can see of what can't be seen. And he says he is the firstborn, the preeminent one over creation. So, so when we look at Jesus in his word and we see him, this word made flesh, we're not, we're not just looking at anybody, we're looking at the glory of God, which means he's not something that you toy with. He's not something that you add to your life like some kind of a good luck charm. He's, he's not a fire insurance policy that you hold on to and admire from a distance. No, he is the glory of God in the flesh, and so he is to be trusted. Scripture says that he is to be uh, followed, and he is to be worshipped, and he is to be obeyed. When Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple on the eighth day as his, um, was prescribed under the law, and there was a man in the temple named Simeon, this, the scripture calls him a righteous man, who was looking with faith-filled eyes. He was anticipating the word made flesh. He took Jesus in his arms and he said this later on in Luke 2. He says, now, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jewish world, and the glory of your people Israel. He understood that he was looking at the glory of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. And so this is the, the first glorious aftershock that kind of reverberates out from this earth-shattering statement that the Word became flesh. But there's a second, there's a second aftershock, if you will, that falls uh, right on the heels of what he says uh, in verse 14, and that is, that not only did the word become flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory is of the one and only from the Father, but he says he is full of grace and truth. And the second, I guess the second aftershock is that when you look in the face of Jesus Christ, you are looking at the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. When Jesus came into the world, we said the, the wonder and the glory of God the Father was, you could see it, you could, you could look at it. You could, John says later on in 1 John that we, we could touch it, we could see him. And, uh, and the wonder and the glory was 
He describes it here at the end of verse 14 as the fullness of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see the fullness, the fullness of grace. Grace, this concept in Scripture, uh, has the idea of something undeserved, something completely uh, uh, generous in the highest order, not something you earn, not something that you can accomplish for yourself. It is wholly and entirely undeserved. It always has a something of always has the idea of something that we could not achieve on our own. And the fact that God would come to earth and to live um, and die in the place of helpless sinners like you and like me um, is just underscores the reality that we did not deserve this. We did not deserve that. It, it, is, it is an act of gracious love by God himself. And when you look in the face of Jesus Christ, you are looking... You and I are looking at the fullness of grace. You're meant to see your own hopeless condition. You're meant to see your own spiritual poverty, your your own inability. And at the same time, you are meant to see in Jesus Christ his overflowing generosity and grace. 1 John 4 verse 9 says, By this, the love of God was manifest to us that God sent his only begotten son into the world, and here's the reason, so that we might live through him. So John points out that he is the fullness of grace, but he also uses a second key word that follows right on the heels of grace here, and he says that he is the fullness of truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Uh, In fact, he claimed that title for himself. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To see truth, absolute truth, we must look at Jesus because he is the embodiment of truth. And uh, and that concept, truth, is is hard for our minds to grasp because it's an abstract concept. Um, And if we can make it concrete, our brains can maybe understand it a little bit better, right? So if I, an example of an abstract thing like that is beauty. If I say, um, uh, what is beauty? That's a hard question to answer. Um, It's hard to describe, but it's easy to point out and say, well, that is a thing of beauty. And when we do that, then we see it for what it really is. It's the same with truth. It can be hard to wrap our minds around, well, what is truth and what does that look like? But if we can point it out and say, well, this is truth, well, then suddenly we understand it all the more clearly. And John says, if you want to stop speculating about where truth can be found and what it would look like in perfect humanity, he says, all you need to do is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to speak truth. He came to show people what God's truth looks like. He came to show us what God's truth would be like if we were without sin. And in so doing, even the simplest of minds can understand and can trust in him. The world says, the world says that absolute truth doesn't matter or it doesn't even exist. Ironically, though, they do that while expecting everyone else in the world to live according to to what they believe is, in fact, absolutely true. 
And so what you have is a, basically a world, a big, chaotic, messy world of competing realities. But Jesus stands above all that. And he stands above all the shadows and he makes things clear and says, listen, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And John says here, he is the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. So when we look at Jesus, we are looking at the face of God's glory and we are looking at the fullness of grace and truth. So when John thinks about Christmas, he thinks about the word become flesh. God the Son, Jesus Christ, the source of life, the light that shines in the darkness, the genuine light that enlightens every man, the reflection of God, the Father's glory, the fullness of grace and truth. That's what he thinks of when it comes to Christmas. And interestingly enough, he goes on to tell us in verse 10 that he was in the world, Jesus was, this word made flesh, and John tells us the world, by and large, didn't recognize him. The world, by and large, didn't acknowledge him. They didn't recognize him as coming from the Father. They didn't believe the words that he spoke, and they refused to submit to his authority as Lord, and they rejected him as their Savior. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and that same world did not know him. And um, even his own people rejected him. Verse 11, he came to his own, meaning the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. And it's true for the world today. By and large, the world doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord or Savior, and they refuse to listen to him. Why? Because the scripture says you need faith-filled eyes to recognize. You need faith-filled eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You need faith-filled eyes to see him as the fullness of grace and truth. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light, the understanding of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that in 2 Corinthians 4. In other words, to look at the face of Jesus as he's revealed in the pages of Scripture and feel the aftershocks in your soul and to understand it and to believe it that I'm looking at the Father's glory. I am looking at the fullness of grace and truth. To understand that, that requires a new heart. It requires what the Bible calls that you be born again. You say, well, how do I do that? How does one, how does one accomplish that work? Well, it's actually not something that you accomplish. John says you receive him. You receive that reality of who he is. You entrust your life and your soul into his hands, recognizing that you, you cannot save yourself. You cannot do enough to accomplish uh, salvation or to rescue yourself, and you receive what Christ did in your place. Verse 12, as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe Upon his name. And so the way we receive Christ is by faith, by trusting him, by turning away from all that dishonors him and acknowledging who we are before a holy God and 
receiving what he has done at the cross and trusting that his resurrection from the grave proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was indeed, was the word with God, he is God, that all things came into being through him and that he is indeed the fullness of grace and truth. And so as you have some opportunity over the next couple of days to reflect on Christmas and enjoy all the things that we get to enjoy, uh, we need to remember those words, light and life. And uh, we need to see him as great, full of grace and truth and glory. And I pray that you would receive his salvation, that you wouldn't be like these people in the world who did not receive him, who did not acknowledge him and rejected him. Be among those who count him as their heavenly father and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. He will bring light. He will bring life. And he will ensure that the life of God belongs to us and that we will enjoy not only the, the, the glory of what is to come after this life, but even glory in following him in this life. And so that's just a word of encouragement for you this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet profound disclosure that you are indeed the light and that you are the one in whom there is salvation. There is salvation, the scripture says, in no one else. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't make the mistake of not receiving the glorious gift of your Son. We pray that you would work on every heart. And Lord, for those who do know you and have trusted in you and are looking to you and living for you each and every day, fighting the good fight of faith, we pray that we would be comforted and encouraged to know that you have not abandoned us in this world. You came once as a little baby. You will come back one day as Lord of heaven and earth to make all things new. And so, Lord, we pray that we would find, be found ready in that final day. We ask this in Jesus' name. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.